From Troy Public Radio and the College of Communication and Fine Arts at Troy University, this is Inquire, conversations about choral music, the arts, and life. I'm Scott Sexton. And I'm Diane Orlovsky. In this podcast, we want to tell you the stories behind the songs. We want to go directly to composers and thinkers and supporters of arts to learn how they explore sound and universal text and shared human experiences. And we're going to launch into something that I have called inauguration. I love when young artists release their works into the world. And I've actually spent a little time thinking about it in relationship to the spoken word, the written word, and even choral music. And and let me tell you a little bit about it. Inauguration. If you were to look at my bookshelves or glance at my playlist or linger a moment in front of pieces from my ceramic pottery collection, you would notice that many of them represent the front edge of an artist's, writer's, or composer's career. The works come during the time, that period before the author becomes well-known or before he has to follow a formula for commercial success. There is something about a first novel that speaks to me. The young writer usually takes such great care crafting truthful dialogue or prose that is so detailed it reminds me of a photograph. The words waltz off the page and resonate long after I put the book down. I often approach an individual's second literary attempt with great caution, trying not to be disappointed when it just doesn't live in the inaugural magic of the first. First pottery pieces are often much cruder than ones appearing in later collections, too. But, oh, I find those young artists often embrace color and form almost as if they are realizing the potential of the wheel the vastness of available color palettes, the privilege of throwing clay, the boundlessness of artistic freedom. Choral music is no different. I believe it is essential to support composers who are exploring the tonal landscape in profound ways. They breathe life into text. They move our ears to places that require a second and third and fourth hearing to even begin to understand significance. As a human being well past the middle of life, I celebrate daring first attempts at greatness. Sometimes this greatness is merely foreshadowed. Other times, it hits a bullseye. In either case, the world is richer for their effort. Diane, through the years, you've always been so great about sending me things from people who were in the early part of the career. Right. Mm-hmm. And a while ago, I can't remember when, you sent me some works by Alex Burko, I think, 
when I was kind of delving in the vocal jazz world. But then right. later you sent me A Sacred Place. So tell us, how did you find that? I mean, yeah, it's just I ta- you know, in our conversation together, I'm going to get an opportunity to talk about this first meeting that I had with Alex. But as a young composer, he impressed me very early on. He was in, only in college at the time he was beginning to write music. And I kept his name in the back of my mind. And when I saw his name attached to this six-movement work, A Sacred Place, I had been so impressed with his inaugural work that I had listened to that I gave it a listen, and boy, was I happy I did. I was just so thrilled that I reached out to say, let let me see if first he remembers that time way long ago, (laughs) and if he would talk more with us about what it's like to be a young artist who's beginning to get some major national recognition. His choral music is featured on two Grammy-nominated albums for Best Choral Performance, Conspirare's House of Belonging and The Crossing's Carols After a Plague. And later this year, Alex will see his works premiered in Chicago and at Carnegie Hall. So just tell us a little bit about your background, but first I'd like for the audience to know I met you pretty early on, by chance. If you recall this, I don't know if you even remember this, Mm -hmm. but we were at a conference, a jazz education conference, and you were singing with um, Indiana University jazz singers. And it was, of course, the performance was phenomenal, but... There was one piece on the program which was arranged by you. It was an arrangement of Where is Love from uh, Oliver. And I remember I I wanted that concert to be over so I could go up and ask you, how do I get my hands on this music? And I will never forget your response. It was like, I haven't taken that class yet. I think you were a a sophomore at the time, and you said, I don't know how to do this, so can I take the class and learn how to do this, how to market music, and get back to you? And I said, oh, sure. So you took the class in spring term, and we got together in the summer, and I bought the piece, and we performed it in the fall. And that was my kind of chance introduction to you and to your fantastic work. So I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, I feel like that story, I guess, is a good example of how I've figured things out, which is just kind of stumbling along until (laughs) I either get it right or wrong. And usually it's wrong and someone hopefully nicely corrects me. But I'm obviously so like grateful for people like you who have come into my life early on and taken a chance on me because it's definitely scary sometimes I would imagine as a conductor too probably exciting as well but you're certainly taking a risk on someone new um, who doesn't have anything established in any way so I guess to your earlier question I came to composition and started in music through piano so I, I played piano when I was really young and I would improvise a lot so my teachers would get upset with me because I wasn't <laughs> playing exactly what Mozart or Beethoven wrote and uh, then I quickly through the very good fortune of my parents, got a composition teacher who was like, that's okay, you don't have to play what Mozart's playing, you can do what you're doing, but let's figure out how to actually craft this into something that sounds like you and not necessarily like Mozart or Beethoven. But that's a pretty common place for a lot of people to start, I think, through that imitation process. 
I had a great teacher who just uh, introduced me to each instrument one by one, and mm. I sort of discovered it through piano. So I would write like a piece for horn and piano, or a piece for violin and piano, and then eventually I dropped the piano and just wrote like a string quartet. And so that was sort of my introduction into all of these worlds. And I also had a great choir teacher, which is how you know me. So all of that was swirling in my head at the same time as like these contemporary composition lessons where I was learning about ligety and um, about all sorts of different contemporary composers. And so it's this big like amalgamation of stuff. And instead of trying to like just go one direction, I found myself finding different avenues to express those different forms of music. So choir seemed to be a larger pillar and I found vocal jazz through my college, through Indiana University, and we had that amazing vocal jazz ensemble, mm -hmm. and uh, we got opportunities to perform, and then I still did stuff with piano, and yeah, there was a bunch of different things that were kind of swirling around that all informed, I think, the way that I thought about music and put things together. We certainly have given the piano, and both Scott and I are pianists, so we appreciate when a composer gives the piano a prominent place as sort of another voice. Tell yeah, us a little definitely. bit about Sacred Place. This is where we're going to sort of drop anchor for a while. So the concept for Sacred Place was inspired by any large-scale choral setting. So I was thinking about masses, and I was thinking about requiems and cantatas. And I found that there were a couple contemporary composers in specific, um, namely at the time I was thinking of Carlos Simon and of Sarah Kirkland Snyder, who had written these like really compelling pieces that were based off of these larger scale works, but didn't necessarily use them in their most typical form, as you would see like Mozart's Requiem or Brahms Requiem mm -hmm. or like Bernstein Mass. And so I was really in intrigued by this idea of taking some pre-existing form, but interpreting it in a new way. And Craig approached me about this very, very early of this year, actually, January 2023, and wanted the piece around March. Oh. <laughs> so the whole thing happened very, very quickly. Wow. So there was about a week of time where I was just basically, you know, 18 hours a day, just kind of like journaling, researching feverishly to figure out what concept this piece was going to take on. And in some of our preliminary conversations, it was writing a piece that was about community, togetherness, um, sacredness as well, which I think is probably where the title originally came from, and finding a way to create a sort of universality about this piece. Um, he also did express an interest in collective grief and finding sonic places for us to experience that. So some of these movements lean more on that concept than others. But the idea is that I took the Jewish service and broke it down into the different parts, which became the separate movements. So if you're familiar with the Jewish service, you know that there's not a perfectly strict structure as there would be for a Catholic mass. You have different services according to the different 
times of year and the different holidays of the Jewish calendar. So um, Yom Kippur has a different service, and uh, Rosh Hashanah has a different service, and Shabbat on Friday nights has a different service. Mm-hmm. But this is sort of the general service. I took like the pillars of that service. So the Amida is a big is a big part of pretty much any Jewish service that you would be a part of, and that's typically at the very beginning of the service. And the Shema is a prayer that's said at almost every single Jewish service. Same with the Misha Berach, and then same with the Kaddish. And then I flanked the piece with an opening and closing prayer that used the same text. So instead of thinking about the text for the piece as being just these prayers, another interesting element that I thought about was putting an environmentalist spin on the entire thing. So simply using the Jewish ceremony as a framework for these other voices to be able to speak. So mm-hmm. I chose to include Wendell Berry, uh, John Muir, uh, William Stafford, and Rabindranath Tagore to really tell the story of our environment and our earth and how they do relate in, in many ways to the Jewish service and sacredness as a whole. Alex, in movement two, I'd like to circle back to what you were saying about how you include natural elements and your composition. In movement two, Diane and I, we both heard a lot of playing around with text painting on images like mountain and temple. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. So text painting is certainly a big part of my process. I Part of why I love working with text is because if I'm just writing instrumental music, I have to come up with everything from scratch, but text kind of gives me half the answers, I feel like. So, yeah, I tried to craft some of these larger structures that had something to do with with the text. So the piece starts with how softly, which is Mm -hmm. almost heard as like this little whisper, and it grows out of that, and the, the text repeats again how softly these mountain rocks are adorned. And that's the next phrase. And then continuing on, and how fine and reassuring the company they keep. And then company is text painted where you hear more voices and a little bit more counterpoint and more layers happening. Company they keep, company they keep, company they keep. And then coming together and browse in the sky. And that sort of opening is this feeling of browse in the sky, this upward gesture you hear, the violin, the cello, and the piano for the first time are really playing in unison with the choir as a way of sort of showing and feeling the sense of openness and upward motion. What a great introduction to what we will hear. Let's listen to the opening few minutes of Movement 2 of Sacred Place. Thank you. 
This is Inquire. I'm Diane Orlovsky, and you've been listening to a bit of Movement 2 of Alex Burko's composition, Sacred Place. Let's pick up the conversation with Alex. You know, in Movement 3, there's one line, and I often question how composers of all of the text available to them find just that right, magical, provocative line. And the one in Movement 3 that stuck out to me was the Sermon of the Hills, Hallelujah Mm -hmm. Mountain, highway guided by the way the world is tilted. And when I heard that for the first time, I went, wow, that's a great line. I mean, how do you approach that? I mean, winnowing through all the text to find lines like that. Yeah, that was that line also spoke a lot to me. And when I was talking and pitching this piece to lots of people, that was the one that I picked out. Mm. So it's so funny that you also resonated with it. Um, actually, that's a it's a good question. I typically will start setting my favorite stuff first and then build backwards. So I'm not the kind of composer that will just start from the very beginning. Oftentimes, especially because that moment that you're speaking about is somewhat of an arrival point. Mm -hmm. So I'll oftentimes write the arrival point first and then build backwards from that. So I wanted to create this just exhalation, this feeling that that you experience in that moment. And the other kind of maybe fun little piece there is that motive, the Sermon of the Hills, is the exact same motive as the as the very opening um, gesture. And actually in each movement, you can find that. Um, There is that just falling stepwise thing. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make that, and I orchestrate it slightly different. I harmonize it differently every single time. But you can go through and find where that is, sometimes multiple times in each movement. Let's give everyone a chance to hear this section of Movement 3, starting with that wonderful line we spoke of just a minute ago.
Movement four felt like a prayer to me. Help us find the courage, make our lives a blessing, bless those in need of healing, the renewal of the body of spirit. And can you just share a little bit of, now those lines you say are taken from the Old Testament. And is that a regular part of the Jewish prayer service, those lines? Yeah, so the Mishaberach is usually like the emotional focal point of each Jewish ceremony, where it is a bit of a call to healing yes. and asking asking God and your neighbors to, to heal you in some way. And this movement is the only one that uses text straight from the Old Testament. This is the actual only English translation. The other movements, as you know, use other text from different mm-hmm. writers. But the image that came to my mind during this one was there is a point in the service where the rabbi or spiritual leader will take their hand and ask if anyone in the congregation has somebody that they would like to say a prayer for. And what happens is the rabbi then holds their hand out, starting outside of the room, and very, very, very slowly scans all the way to the right. And as the rabbi passes you, if you have a name, you say that name. And it's slowly spoken as they move from left to right in the congregation. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about that motion, that slow movement from left to right as the oral painting of this movement. So in my mind, I kind of hear that of this crossing from left to right and this collective call to prayer and this energy that is constantly building as more people are contributing their voices. Thinking about this image that Alex has described, I invite the listeners to enter Movement 4 with us now. Thank you. 
Alex, I would really love to know more about Movement 5, the Kaddish. Maybe first let our listeners know the significance in the Jewish service. And then I would love to know more about how you brought in the text. Sure. So Kaddish loosely translates to holy. And most people know of the Kaddish as the part of the mourner's Kaddish, which is often a prayer said for the sick or those who have recently died. And this movement definitely has some of that uh, sort of somber and um, static quality to it that I think is very different, especially from the Misha Berach, which comes right before it. Most of the movements are sort of buzzing in their internal rhythm, but this one sort of brings everything to a halt in a way. And I was interested, the text is a Rabindranath Tagore quote. It's just a tiny little fragment of a sentence. Um, it's, let my thoughts come to you um, when I am gone, like the afterglow of sunset. And the very last line is, at the margin of starry silence. And the piece really just unfolds. It continues to repeat this text. And every time it repeats the text, it just gets a little bit longer. It's a similar process that I actually used in the Amida at the very beginning. What I'm trying to do in this movement, I don't know if it comes across, but to me, I hear it this way as a sunrise and a sunset and just a very gradual moving upward and then a moving downwards. And it's really a big crescendo. It's sort of like Ravel's Bolero is the shape that I had in mind. It's chant-like. I think this one is the most sort of aural call to some sort of religious service, maybe something more like orthodox or something a little bit more, uh, yeah, chant-like. And so I felt I needed to have some sense of like aural sacredness, <laughs> mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It does. Um, and I think it fits into the... The whole architecture of the whole piece, all six movements, have this arc to them. Mm. And with, mm. the f with four being at the top, you know, in mm -hmm. my mind, right? And then this is on its way down and then, of course, closing with the same Wendell Berry text. But I, I find mm -hmm. that pretty much seamless throughout. That, that's an, a big arc through the whole piece, which is, I thought was masterful. I really oh, like what you said you. about the chant because I heard that. And... This brings me to my next point. I think every culture, every religion has some beautiful chant sources. And in your program notes for the piece, this really struck me. I'm going to read the following from your program notes. Entering one space and experiencing elements of another culture's service, the audience is entering a sacred space within themselves. I'd like to know, is this a defining ethos in all of your works? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I would say that the through line in a lot of my work is about connection and about finding something personal and finding a way to make it universal. And I think that this piece is that for what it means to find sacredness, whether that's within yourself or within a community. The idea that this piece was going to be performed in a church, mm -hmm. but it had a Jewish text and a Jewish theme, I thought was interesting that there can be this wholeness and a universalness about 
religion and about spirituality that is not exclusive to a particular place. And then I also found it fascinating that the singers are experiencing something as they're breathing together and following the conductor. And then they're translating that to the audience who is also receiving that message and internalizing it to themselves. And in all of that, they're in this church, which has its own sacred context. And I was putting my context onto that context. It gets a little meta, but... <laughs> you know, but all of these things are swirling in my head about what does it mean to find sacredness. Let's listen to a portion of Movement 5, titled Kaddish. We've been listening to the choral ensemble Conspirare perform excerpts from Alex Burko's work, Sacred Place. To close, we asked Alex about his experience as a young creative 
who is getting much-deserved recognition for his work. I tried to really value building strong relationships from a young age with people who believed in what I was doing. So I would even use you as an example. Because you did that, it actually allowed me to write something else within that style and gave me the confidence to know that this was something that was valued and this is something that people saw interest in. So I took a lot of time and care in building these relationships with people and seeking out certain conductors or the next opportunity that I felt like was going to match well with the thing that I was doing. And then the other thing was just the diversity of the musical activities that I was involved with, I think was also maybe a little bit of an outlier to say that I'm not just a composer, but I play piano, I'm also an arranger, I transcribe, and a lot of that stuff seem to inform the other thing. So it seems that all of these different things that I've been doing, whether they've been arranging, composing, or playing piano, have all kind of informed one another. And I've really tried to be honest about all of that stuff the whole time. Um, just try to sound like, what would I say musically? How can I translate who I am as a person into my music? And I think that that honesty is hopefully what comes across. Alex, I want to thank you for joining us today. The whole point of this podcast is to engender deeper conversations with people we admire, people we respect their music and their their thought processes and making their music. And you certainly do rank up there, at least in, in my mind. And so we're super excited that you took the time to speak with us today. And we know there's going to be great things ahead for you and can't wait to watch your career. Thank you so much. It's very kind. You've been listening to Inquire, conversations about choral music, the arts, and life. Inquire is produced and edited in the studios of Troy Public Radio by Austin Toy, Kyle Gassett, and Diane Orlovsky. Our logo was designed by Rachel Arnold. Special thanks to the College of Communication and Fine Arts and Dean Michael Thrasher. Please subscribe to the Inquire podcast and let others know about us. You can also leave a review in the podcast platform of your choice. It will help others find the show. We hope you join us again for more conversations about choral music, the arts, and life. This is Inquire. I'm Diane Orlovsky. And I'm Scott Sexton. Thank you for listening.